Well, the last two years has been a bit of a ride, hasn't it? Like it's been crazy, unprecedented, wild. And now the economic sort of situation is in turmoil. That's really good when you just retired. Um, I think most of us are able to say that COVID has been pretty hard on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been restricted. We've been limited in what we have been allowed to do. I know that in, in the church that I used to pastor, the, the impact of our ministry was curtailed in certain respects. And that's been difficult to watch. I'm sure that if I was still pastoring, then there would be people from my old church who would prefer Pastor Pillow to Pastor Paul. I can guarantee you that. A lot of people, as a result of COVID, have just simply stopped going to church and have concluded that video church, virtual church, is just as good as live church. It's been hard. It's been difficult. But my contention is this, that COVID has only exacerbated, it's only accelerated an already significant problem that we have as Christians in Canada, and that is that the church of Jesus Christ in our country is in decline. We're not having the impact on our society that God has called us to have. Here's some statistics. I haven't been able to get really clear statistics about Canada, but I'll give you these statistics about the United States of America, a much more religious country than us. And you can just take all these numbers and divide them by 10, and you're going to get an approximation of where we are at as a culture. Each year, 6,000 churches close in the United States of America. 3,500 people stop attending church every day in the States. 15% of the churches in the United States are growing numerically. And here's the rub. Of that 15%, only 2% of that 15 are growing through conversion growth. That means 0.003 churches in the United States are growing as a consequence of the gospel being shared, lives being changed. Now that is frightening. That's frightening. Good news is that 800 new churches are planted every year, approximately in the States. The bad news is is that it would take 10,000 churches every year to keep up with population growth. And I believe the situation in Canada is much worse. We live in a much more secular society. Now, you are an exception to the rule, I think. I don't know you real well, but I preached here, I think this is third or fourth time. This is my fourth time preaching here. Every time I have come here except one, I think, there has been a baptism. And you have baptized new believers. First Sunday I was here, there were a couple of people, one of those guys... Big tall guy, I don't remember his name. He is a Muslim guy who came to faith in Jesus. And I sat here and watched, and each time I'm choking back tears. Last Easter Sunday, when those folks were baptized, I'm choking back tears because God is using you as a congregation to win people to Christ. That most churches are in decline. Most churches are not growing, and the churches that are growing generally grow because they steal sheep from other churches. We're now living in an anti-Christian, post-Christian culture. I don't know if you saw global news. I tend not to watch the news 
but I saw this headline a couple of weeks ago, April 18th, Global News. An Angus Reid survey said this, many Canadians now believe that Islam, Catholicism, and evangelical Christianity are more damaging to society than beneficial. That's a scary thought. That a whole bunch of our countrymen see Islam, Catholicism, and us as a detriment to the society rather than as a positive influence. And so if you love the church of Jesus Christ and you love the gospel and you aspire to see the gospel impact and transform our culture, these are discouraging facts. It's disheartening. It's sobering. But here's the good news. The church has seen difficult days in the past. We will see difficult days in the future. But the church always triumphs. We are an unstoppable force in our world, designed that way, empowered that way by Christ because of the resurrection. The church has always and will always triumph. When King Solomon was dedicating the temple, God made a promise through him. 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem, this is what Solomon said, and it's still true today. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. That is a promise of God that he has repeatedly kept over these last 3,000 years. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the time frame. It is a promise that God keeps. Whether it was King Josiah in the 6th century B.C., whether it was the time of the Reformation in the 16th century or the time of the Great Awakening in the 18th century or whether it was the, the Welsh revivals at the beginning of the 20th century. What God promises is that if we get serious about our faith, if we humble ourselves and pray and seek him and turn from our sin, he promises to hear from heaven and heal our land. And boy, is Canada broken. Is Canada broken? If there's a time that the church of Jesus Christ needs reviving, it's today. Canada desperately needs it. But more than that, the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be worshipped in Canada more than he is. He needs to be praised. Put simply, repentance precedes revival. God revives his church when people genuinely repent. And I'm convinced that God is going to revive Canada. The question isn't, is he going to do it? The question is, are we going to be the generation that experiences the moving of the Spirit of God in powerful ways or not? You know, I think my tendency and perhaps your tendency is to lament the condition of our culture, to complain about the fact that Canada's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't believe the society is so messed up. I can't believe what's going on in our culture. We lament the society rather than lamenting the condition of the church. The reality is, I believe, that the church, the, 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 the culture is always a barometer of the health of the church. If the Lord has called us to be salt and light to be a purifying, healing, restorative agent in culture. And if the culture is going to hell in a handbasket, 
The problem is not ultimately the culture. The problem is, is the, salt is lo- the salt has lost its savor. We're not doing what we're called to do. We're not being what we're called to be. A revived church changes its culture. A compromised church conforms to its culture. My prayer that over, over these next three weeks is that you as a church would get excited about the thought that God might revive us and get passionate about adopting a posture into which God would be pleased to rush like a mighty rushing wind. That you would get excited about the potential of what God could do, what God could do even more through this congregation and adopt a posture that would create an environment into which the Spirit of God would just rush with power and enthusiasm for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, I would like us to spend some time in the book of Haggai. Haggai was a prophet who prophesied to the people of Israel. He was a post-exilic prophet. So as the people of Israel began to migrate back from Babylon to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, God raised up prophets. Haggai was one of them. The people of God were liberated from their bondage in Babylon beginning in 537 B.C., The first group was led by Zerubbabel, and his responsibility was to go back to the land and build the temple. But 80 years later, Ezra came, about 10 years following him, Nehemiah came. Ezra was called to build the people into a community of faith. Nehemiah, as you remember, was called to build the walls. This first group came in 537 B.C., And in 522 B.C., when Darius came to the throne, almost nothing had been done in terms of building the temple and restoring the worship of God. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple and stopped the worship of God in 586 B.C. So here we are. The people of God have come back into the land, 537 B.C., and by 520 B.C., When Haggai begins his ministry, very, very, very little had been done to build the temple, to restore the worship of Yahweh. So in 520, God raised up Haggai to challenge the people to get busy building the temple. And he spoke God's word to the people. God stirred and revived the people. And in just a little over three weeks, 24 days actually, they were ready to begin work on the temple in Jerusalem. Now think about this. From 537 to 520, 520 BC, 17 years, nothing had happened. Oh yeah, they had laid a foundation and they had built an altar and they had consecrated some priests and Levites and they were doing some ministry in the temple, but it was half-hearted. It was dispassionate. And in 24 days, the people of Israel were ready to build a temple. We say to ourselves, well, how did that happen? What caused that? 
How do you take a people who know the truth, who are in relation to God, have a heart for God? Obviously, they came back from Babylon to Israel. How do you take that group who for 17 years couldn't rouse themselves to do what they knew was necessary to get done? How do you take that group and in 24 days get them ready to build the temple? Well, there's four things that happen in this first chapter that I want us to look at. Four things that I think are critical to revival. So let's look at them together. The first is, they received and they honored the word of God. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, high priest. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time is not yet come, to rebuild the house of the Lord. So how did this revival begin? Where did it start? What was its catalyst? Well, obviously, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. He received the word of God personally, and then Haggai wrote it down. He transcribed it. He inscripturated it. He took the word of God and he put it on a piece of paper, a piece of parchment, a piece of vellum. I don't know what he wrote it on, but he wrote it down and he gave it to those who were in authority. He gave it to Zerubbabel and Joshua. For centuries, this had been the process. God, when he wanted to communicate to his people, would raise up a prophet The prophet would hear the word of the Lord. The prophet would inscripturate the word of the Lord. He would write it down. He would transcribe it. He would put it on paper. And through that, the people of God heard the word of God. So here was God's message that was handed, came by the hand of Haggai to the leaders. Here's the message, and it's this. Is it time for you, says the Lord, to dwell in paneled houses, in luxury, in palatial homes, while my house, this house, lies in ruins? Is that appropriate? Is that good? 16, 17 years you've had time to invest and to build. And for 16, 17 years you have invested and built in your homes making yourself comfortable, prioritizing your situation, while my house lies in ruins. That was the word of God. It was a hard word. It was a word that exposed self-centeredness. It laid bare their apathy. It revealed their nominalism the coldness of their heart, the shallowness of their commitment to God. It was a hard word to hear. It was a rebuke. And how did they respond? They received the word of the Lord. They accepted it as God's word. They didn't question. They didn't doubt. They didn't look askance at it. They didn't study it to see if they could figure out a way to interpret it so the meaning wasn't clear. 
They humbled themselves before the word of God. And this is always where revival begins. This is always where revival begins. The catalyst for revival is always the word of God. The inscripturated word of God. Accepted, humble, we humble ourselves before it, we defer to it, and we recognize it as the living, inspired, inerrant word of God. And we obey. So revival always begins. I'll give you an illustration of this. If you want to go in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, here we are 600, 500 years later. God is now speaking, not through Haggai, but through the prophet Paul. Paul is in a conversation with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, as you know, was one of the most secular, one of the most sinful churches of the churches that Paul ministered to. And so here's what Paul does for them. He inscripturates the word of God and he sends it to them. Look at verse 8 of chapter 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, with the scriptures that I sent you, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. You see, there's an illustration of how God uses his word hard message, a message that might grieve us, a message that might sting, a message that reveals sinfulness and apathy and carnality in us, a message, however, that we must embrace and submit to. We must recognize it as the word of God and defer to it. Today, as I said, we we don't have prophets anymore. They've been obviated, they've been done away with by the fact that we have God's final, perfect, complete revelation to us. We don't need a prophet, although some might argue that what I'm doing right now is prophesying. I'm speaking forth the word of God to you this morning. But that office has sort of been obviated, has become unnecessary because we have God's truth, his perfect revealed truth to us in what we hold in our hands today. But the question is, what do we do with it? How do we treat it? What is our perspective toward it? Some of us dismiss it. Some of us rationalize what's clearly said away because it is uncomfortable for us. Some of us may want to decide that it is culturally bound, and so it just doesn't make sense to live the way the Bible teaches us to live in our modern 21st century society. Some of us go to Bible college or seminary and learn to parse the truth into oblivion, which is a tragedy. It was costly and controversial and socially, and we'll talk about this next week in in more detail, but it was costly, controversially, controversial, and socially unacceptable for the Jews to build this temple. As a matter of fact, it was illegal for them to do what they were about to do. But Israel resisted the opinions of the majority. 
They resisted the culture around them and they obeyed the word of God. And yes, it was painful to hear. The rebuke was hard. And it was culturally unacceptable to do what they were about to do. But they chose to stand four square on the revealed word of God and did what God called them to do. And I'll tell you, the church in Canada will never, ever be revived until we come to that place where we recognize that what you hold in your hand today is the inspired, inerrant, living word of God. And not only that, not only theologically and intellectually must you accept that, but you must get up every single day, bow your entire being before it, and live as if, as if that theological premise is in fact true. God has spoken, and I must obey. The only way that the church will become a countercultural alternative to the mess we see out in our society is when the church says, this is God's word, this is God's ethic, this is God's morality, this is God's word, and I must and will obey it. One of the things that, just as an aside... I just stuck it in my notes last night. But just as an aside, the word of God, the scriptures, in the first century when Paul sent that letter to Corinth, when he sent those letters to Laodicea, he said, have them read. If you really want to understand what God says, listen to the word of God. Studying is great. Listening to sermons is important. But if you want to hear the divine voice, if you want to hear God speak, have someone read to you the scriptures. It boggles my mind how it's possible from the, for the denomination that I came from, for people, Christians, to take the word of God about the role of men and women in the church and in office in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 and hear that and be able then to parse it into complete oblivion, to deny what it says about gender roles in the church and in the home. It boggles my mind. If we would just see this as the living, inspired word of God, understand that when it is read, you are hearing the voice of the living God. It would profoundly change the way that we lived our lives. Folks, the Bible was never introduced to be understood through the eye holes, right? It was, under, it was to be understood through the ear holes. It was heard because it was the voice of God speaking to his people. Too many churches are quick to dismiss parts of the Bible that conflict with the values of our culture. Too many churches are quick to invent new ways of interpreting the Bible that have been missed for 2,000 years. If revival is going to come in my life, in your life, in this church, in my church, it's going to come because we recognize and honor and submit to the living word of God first. Secondly, we've got to recognize the futility of carnal goals. And again, this is hard. The futility of carnal goals. Read with me from verse 4. I'm sorry, verse uh, 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. enough. You drink, but 
you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, here's the consequence. The heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain, the new wine and the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. I don't know if you noticed it, but two phrases there are repeated. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and consider your ways. Both are repeated twice. God's speaking a hard message to his people. And he tells them this. Here's the truth. Now consider your life in comparison to what is true. Consider your circumstances. Consider where you're at. Consider your situation. What does God say? Essentially, you've got wrong priorities. You're prioritizing the wrong things. You're valuing the wrong things. You're treasuring the wrong things. You're prizing the wrong things. And as a consequence, your life is filled with futility and frustration. You've prioritized the wrong things, and I, the living God of Israel, I'm making your life a frustration. I'm filling you with futility. I'm not going to allow you to get those things that you're striving after because I love you too much. And so God frustrates and foils and fills with a sense of futility. So why did God treat Israel like this? He loves these people. These are his chosen people. So why does he frustrate them? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. They're breaking the first commandment. The first first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else should take priority. Nothing else should be a treasure above me. You shouldn't have anything in your life that is more important than me. That's essentially the first commandment. And these things had become idols. An idol is anything we look to to bring us meaning, security, fulfillment, satisfaction other than God. Something that we value more than God himself. God has said, you'll have no other gods before me. And these people were placing many, many, many other things before the priority of God. And so God's response is this. I can't, I can't let you have anything. I can't, I, can't, I can't trust you with any of these things. Because instead of having me as your priority, instead of having me as your treasured possession, all these other things are more important, obviously more important than me. And so as a consequence of the choices that you've made, as a consequence of your priority, I am going to foil you at every turn. I am going to frustrate you. I am going to absolutely thwart you until you come to recognize the futility of carnal priorities. And that's not just an Old Testament message. Jesus said this, Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters for either he will Hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. You can't. You will have one God, one priority, one treasured possession. 
Later on in that chapter, chapter 6, Jesus says this, as a consequence, so therefore seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. When you put everything else first, you get nothing because God loves you too much. When you put Christ and his kingdom first, you get everything. God loves us too much to let us live a life that is a patent breaking of the first commandment. When God sends revival to a church, he always sends it to a church that has his kingdom and his righteousness as its top priority. Our houses and jobs and promotions and a new car and all that kind of, are they important? Yes, they are. But when they define us, when our security is rooted in them, when we find meaning in that thing, that stuff, folks, we're idolaters. And God doesn't revive an idolatrous church. So what drives you? If you're really honest with yourself today, what is your passion? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What propels you? What's the impetus of your life? Christ and his kingdom, his righteousness, his glory, his cause, his church. Is that honestly, just nobody else is in your head. So you don't have to worry about it. And God knows the answer anyway. So what is it? What is catalytic? Financial security, the bigger house, the fancy car, corner office, the promotion. Is it Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Kids, recognition, success. And the list can go on and on and on, right? God revives his people when our priorities are right. And the priorities that we have to have is the glory and the honor of Jesus. And that's why the next thing is so critical. The third thing is this. They became passionate about God's glory. They became passionate about God's glory. Read with me again, verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Do this for me for my pleasure and my glory. Now, if one thing is absolutely patently clear from this little book, it's that the glory of the God of Israel was not a priority for these people. Not a priority at all. The reason I can say that with such confidence is because when in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, he completely destroyed the reputation of the God of Israel. If the God of Israel isn't big enough and strong enough and powerful enough to prevent his temple from being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his gods, what kind of pathetic, weak, impotent God do you worship, Israel? You see, because the temple lay in ruins, the reputation of Yahweh lay in ruins in the wider world. And everybody knew that, including the Jews. 
including Zerubbabel and all the people that came with him, intent on building the temple because they were concerned about the reputation and the name and the fame of the God of Israel. And for 17 years, they accomplished nothing. They didn't seem to care, ultimately, because God's glory was not their passion. They were worshiping in a makeshift manner, showing little regard for the reputation of their God, all the while living in very comfortable, very well-appointed circumstances. And Haggai says, this is not going to do. God says, this is not going to do. So beginning on the first day of the sixth month of the reign of Darius, the Persian emperor, which is 520 BC, he begins to preach this message. And as I said at the beginning of my message, in about 24 days, they went up to the hills, they got the wood, they brought it all back down again, they collected all the stones which were lying in, you know, just this big pile of rubble, and they were ready. Three weeks, three weeks and two, three days. In three weeks, the prophet of God was able to motivate the people of God to get passionate about the glory of God. You see, that's where revival happens. It happens when we really get ourselves and our security and our wants and our priorities and our greatness. And our, you know, we get ourselves off the throne and we say, Lord, it's all about you. It's about the glory of your great name in Canada right now. A name which is being besmirched and dragged through the mud and ignored and trivialized and mocked. The name of our great God and Savior. Is it important? There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important. It is the heartbeat of revival. It's not, revival isn't primarily that lost people get saved. It's not primarily about bigger churches. It's not primarily about healing what's broken in families and in cultures. It's not primarily about any of that kind of stuff, although all that kind of stuff happens as a consequence of a revival. It's primarily and always about the only thing that truly matters, and that is the worship of Jesus Christ, who is worthy. The Lamb who was slain. Today is worshipped by myriad thousands and millions of people in heaven. We'll be there someday doing that as well. But the fact that he is not worshipped that way today on earth is a tragedy. And we, the church, have been used by God in the past, in many times, in many cultures, in many places, through revival to bring profound worship to the people of our world, to bring them into the kingdom so that they too will stand with us with arms high and hearts abandoned and worship Jesus Christ. Because nothing else matters. Revival happens because worship isn't, essentially. So let me ask you again the hard question. How important to you is the name and the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ? How important is his reputation, his glory? Does it grieve you that all the people around you on your street don't know him? Use him as a swear word. 
Does it break our hearts? I don't know, this isn't in my notes, and I hope I remember the story well, but there were two Moravian missionary. Moravians were from Germany. A guy named Count Zinzendorf was the, the founder of the Moravian movement in Germany. And these guys, back in, I think it's the 1700s, wanted to go to, wanted to, go to Jamaica to evangelize the slaves who were being brought in there by the thousands and dying in the cane fields. And they were told by the owners of the sugar plantations that they weren't allowed to go and preach the gospel. So listen, they sold themselves into slavery. And they were getting on a boat in Germany to go to Jamaica. And they knew they weren't coming back because they were going to be slaves and they were going to experience the same fate as so many hundreds of thousands of slaves from Africa had experienced and were experiencing. And as the ship is pushing off from the dock, and their families were standing there listening and watching them go, they listened. And in the last words they heard those guys shout, in answer to the question, why are you doing this? Nobody was asking the question, but it was obvious. What are you doing? And the, the reply, what they heard on the shore, the reply was simply this that the lamb who was slain might receive that the lamb who was slain might receive the reward of the suffering you see those guys got it those guys got it they understood nothing else matters but that the lamb that was slain might receive the reward of his suffering. When our hearts are there, look out. That's when the people has humbled themselves. That's, when the, that's, that's the time, that's the environment, that's the context in which the Spirit of God just comes like a mighty rushing wind. It empowers and enlivens and transforms a church into a powerful, unstoppable force in the community. Okay, now I can't see my words. <laughs> Bear with me. Okay, lastly. Lastly, they embrace the grace of repentance. Let me read with you from verse 12 and following. Actually, could you just turn my microphone off just for one second? Because I'm going to blow my nose. Thank you. Okay, we're done. Fourthly, they embraced the grace of repentance. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, as the word of the Lord had sent. Uh, the word as uh, the word of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. 
Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shentiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked in the house of the Lord their God, the Lord of hosts. In the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now there's a process that I want you to see here. So what happens is the people hear the message of God and they go up into the mountains and they chop the wood and they do everything that's necessary and they bring it down from the mountains and all the stones that Nebuchadnezzar has torn down are still there and they are ready. 24 days later and they're about to do something, something that is absolutely illegal. They're about to do something, something that is absolutely reprehensible to the people of their culture, people who are living around them. They're about to step out into the unknown. They're about to obey God, and it could be incredibly costly. So here's the process. They have the wood. They have the stones. The word of God had produced a fear, a fear of the Lord in them, a reverence for God that trumped everything else, which led to his presence. You see that? God says, I'm with you. I'm with you. And that is the essence of what revival is. When God shows up, when God manifests his presence in powerful, supernatural, unexpected ways, brings profound conviction of sin, empowers preachers like they have never been empowered before, takes our testimony and our witness and uses it powerfully in the lives of people to bring them to Christ. You see, revival is not what we do. It's what God does in us and through us. And so the people did what they were called to do. And this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. We don't see a cold, detached, distant, austere God standing back with his arms folded saying, build that temple. And when you obey me, then I will bless you. We see a God who understands that even the grace of obedience has to come from him. It's not a message that says, repent and I will come into your midst. Obey and I will bless you. That's the foundation of all religions. But that's not the message that we see in this passage of scripture. The message we see in this passage of scripture here is a message of grace. We see the mercy and the loving kindness of God leading people to repentance. This all was a work of God. God moves in them. God stirs up their spirit. God enables them to do what otherwise they wouldn't have done in the first place. That's grace. Revival is always a work of God. We'll never manufacture it. We can't create it. There's no formula for it. It happens when the sovereign God of history chooses to revive his people. But we can be ready. We can have the wood. We can have the stones. We can be living in obedience. We can have our priorities right. And when God says it's time, he comes and he stirs he bends the heavens and comes into his people. Read the history of revival. 
Read about all night prayer meetings. People weeping and broken over their sin. Read about Whitfield standing in the fields of Bristol, speaking to 10,000 miners coming out of the coal mines and seeing God move powerfully through that man. Wesley, Evan Roberts, so many in the history of our world have been used so powerfully by the living God to bring transition and healing and salvation to to the people of a particular community, a particular country. So how do we get the stones? How do we get the wood? How do we prepare ourselves? Well, it begins with the word of God being honored, right? You've got to honor his word. You've got to get our priorities right. And that number one priority is his glory and his honor, his name, his reputation. And then fourthly, when he's ready, in his timing, if the environment is correct, if it's a welcoming environment to the Spirit of God, he comes like a mighty rushing wind and he says by his presence, I am with you. When that happens, nothing is ever the same again. So are you tired of seeing the church languish? Are you tired of seeing the name of Jesus besmirched? Are you tired of seeing the gospel having little impact on your neighbors and friends? We must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves before God. Get our priorities right. We need to repent. We need to develop a deep, deep passion to see Jesus glorified and then be ready and wait and trust that when he says it's time, he will come into his church and nothing will ever be the same. A huge big part of it is repenting. And what better time is there for a Christian to sort of get right with God than when we celebrate communion together? This is our opportunity to come back to first principles, to come back to the fundamentals. If you're not a believer, you shouldn't do this. But if you're a believer, even though you know your priorities are messed up, even though you know right right now, I'm not living for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'm living for the glory of me. This is a wonderful time to remember the cross. It's a wonderful time to get on your face before God and say, God, I got it wrong, but I love your grace. I love your amazing grace. And Father, I'm coming home again. I want to lay this down. I'm done with playing with, with foolish the foolish baubles of this world. I'm going to find my identity, my security, my significance, my worth, my value in you because I'm going to treasure you more than anything else. And how can I not when I understand the cross? Communion is a wonderful time for us to spend some time with Jesus alone. And so before we do, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. And then when I finish praying, I know that your tradition here is that you just move to one of these stations Take the elements, go back to your seat, and I'll lead you through the, through, the, um, through the service. But let's just pray. Lord, you said at the beginning that we long to see you move. We long to see revival in our country. It's so desperately needed. But Lord, before that happens, revival has to happen in my heart. You've got to take that heart of stone 
that selfishness, that pride. I gotta humble myself, Lord. I gotta seek your face. I gotta pray. Turn from my wickedness. Get my priorities right. Get you back in your proper place as my God, my Lord, my master. So Lord, I know there are brothers and sisters here today who, like me, struggle with these issues. We, we wrestle with, with your word. Can I trust it? Is it true? Our priorities are messed up, Lord. It's my house, my life, my priorities, my plans. And if we're really honest with ourselves, Lord, we're really not passionate about your glory. It doesn't break our heart that you're not worshipped and marked in the way that you deserve to be worshipped. So, Lord, this morning, would you meet us at communion? You've redeemed us. You've purchased us with our blood, your blood. You love us. You're for us. You've spoken to us this morning through your word. Lord, if that's happened, I just pray that you gently, like a shepherd, lead us to that place of repentance where we lay down the sin, lay down the apathy, lay down the pride, lay it all down, come to the foot of the cross again and just embrace Jesus. So work in our hearts this morning, I pray. And as a consequence of working in my heart and in our hearts, I pray that this church would be different as, as a result. And that we would be prepared that someday like a mighty rushing wind, as you did at Pentecost, as you have done at other times in the history of the church, that you would just rush, you'd bend the heavens, that you would come and that nothing would be the same. Grant that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.